Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. Happy Monday. I say that like I'm in a good mood, although, you know, I'm sitting here reading all the stuff about the vaccines and the explosion of the Delta variant, and I can't say that I'm in that great a mood, so... Um, maybe maybe Will Salatin can put me in a better mood. Uh, Will uh, joins us again on the podcast, national correspondent for Slate. So, yeah, you in a good mood, Will? Well, on a, I, on a Monday morning, I, it sounds like I'm in a better mood than you. So, I'm going to like take it as my mission to cheer up Charlie Sykes this morning. Okay, well, I, I would I would appreciate that. Um, so, here's our palate cleanser of the morning for people who had a life and did not spend two two hours listening to. The former guy's speech down in Arizona. I mean, I, I, you know, hesitate to repeat myself, but I mean, it was, it was crazy stuff. Did it really last two hours? Will, did you listen to the speech? Uh, I did, and uh, so two hours. I, I cannot claim to be a veteran of um, the Castro regime or yeah. Louis, Louis Farrakhan. Was also, I think, those guys are now relegated to silver and bronze uh, because this was a yes, a, like a two-hour Trump speech. To uh, a, an audience every bit as captive as any Cuban audience of Castro, I, I, I am. I am trying to think of anyone on Earth who I could listen to for two hours, and I'm I'm coming up short, man. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm trying to think. Okay, when I was a fanboy of X, no, there's no way two hours. So I'm just going to play about thirty seconds of this because I, I thought this was the the, the classic moment. Of, uh, of Donald Trump spinning one of his conspiracy theories. Now, people need to understand. I mean, we're not going to go down too far down the rabbit hole here. Um, but one of the my pillow guy conspiracy theories is about the the way the votes in Arizona might have been uh, flipped uh, because of the routers. I don't know whether the routers went to the Italian satellites or whether it was. I, mean, I don't know. But here, I, actually, here Charlie, the, I think they're connected yeah. to the space laser. Well, look, all of this at some point will all be linked. They will be the Jewish space lasers connected to the routers in Maricopa County, which were counting the bamboo-laced ballots, which had been flown in from China. So here is actually the former president of the United States and the prohibitive favorite to be the Republican nominee for president uh, in 2024. Let's play 30 seconds of, of Donald Trump. The county has, for whatever reason, also refused to produce the network routers. We want the One, routers, Sonny. Two, Wendy, we got to get those routers, three, please. The routers. Four. Come on, Kelly, we can get those routers. Those five, routers. Six. You know what? It, we're so beyond the routers. There's seven, so many fraudulent votes without the routers. But seven, if eight, you got those routers, what nine, that will show. And they don't want to give up the routers. They ten, don't want to give them. They are fighting like hell. Why are these commissioners fighting not to give the routers? How simple could it be? That will tell the truth. I, okay, so in about 30 seconds, 11 times used the word routers. Yeah, clearly somebody told him this word, and he's very excited about it. I mean, I think he understands it about as well as he understands anything else technical, which is like, you know, Trump's classic thing is wheel a wheel and a wall. He loves to say that, right? Because those are two things he understands. Mm -hmm. He understands right. putting up a wall, he understands a wheel. But when you start getting into technology, man, it's just a word I can throw around to claim that there's some secret component. It's a transistor, it's a semiconductor that has like magic information proving 
in a way that I've never been able to show in any court that uh, that I'm the victim of some massive election fraud. This is the signal to my fellow young people that I know technology. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to have a I want to have a T-shirt for this guy. I want to have a T-shirt that's like you know for the January sixth uh, the insurrectionist. That's like rioters against routers. I think that would be a good slogan. I, I, of course, we'll never find out whether he has any idea what a router is, how a router works, whether a router has any information stored in it. Uh, can you can you imagine asking Donald Trump to install a router at his house or anything <laughs> like that? I, you know, I say this stuff like it's parody, but I, I don't know how else you deal with with this guy. So two hours and it was I mean, so what did you make of? By the way, why did you listen to all two hours? <laughs> because like, OK, so I have. I, I'm trying not to be hysterical, right? Okay. Like uh, the I'm, honest truth I'm, is Donald Trump, has, he's probably not going to get reelected president right? if he runs again. But, you know, the, the first time I didn't think he'd get elected. So I think it's probably wise to keep an eye on this guy, right? He I, does, well, I agree. He does have an entire political party still under his thumb, obviously. So um, for that reason, I want to pay attention to everything he says. Oh, also, a lot of people who know Donald Trump is nuts are just not paying attention and you know, the the escalation in his rhetoric is, I know people believe, don't believe he could get worse, but he has gotten worse. And, yes. and he still has people following him. And like, the weird thing about this speech to me, Charlie, was, so it's two hours of speech, almost two hours. And I'm, uh, my recollection, just my eyeball from, or my earball from listening to it, all, about an hour of that was just talking about his claims of election fraud. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to go on with like your agenda for America or what you think is wrong with the Biden administration. But this was just rehearsing every crazy conspiracy theory of his from the last election. So there's a degree of living in the past here, egged on by the crowd, which loved all of that stuff. That's just incredibly pathological. Yeah, he is going deeper and deeper down these these holes. I, it, Amanda Carpenter has a great piece in the Bulwark about it and pointing out that he's he's got basically two goals here. He wants to play kingmaker and enforcer, but he is obsessed with this uh, from Saturday. I, I tell people this is the biggest issue there is, Trump said of elections and his big lie. This is bigger than the border, okay? This is bigger than anything. This is the biggest issue. So uh, in case there's any doubt about whether we're concerned about the debt and the deficit or crime or uh, critical race theory or even building a wall. Remember the wall? I mean, the wall was supposed to protect us from the caravan. Nothing <laughs> compared to what's going on with with the routers. And I but you but you're right. I every once in a while I'll hear from people say, you know, we should, we should just ignore him. I No, I, I think we didn't take him seriously back in 2016. You ignore the crazies. And then before you know it, you open your door and they're right there. So Yeah. And this is not the way, like if you talk to a Republican politician, this is not the way they would treat someone in their own family, in their own life. Someone who has a personality, oh, a, a, a serious you. personality defect, it does not go away, right? So these people, I, I, they talk about how, you know, let's let that go into the past and we'll talk about the future. And they talk about Trump plus, and we're just not going to deal with that election stuff and we're going to ignore it. He won't let you ignore it, right? He won't yeah. give up on it. And him spending an hour on it in this speech is kind of a clue that you're either going to have to break with him or you're going to have to embrace his fantasy. Oh, no, I, exactly. So I was actually had the same reaction over the weekend. I'm looking at, I think it was, uh, was a Pat Toomey was on one of the one of the cable shows over the weekend. And I'm looking into his eyes. I mean, he's like a reasonably just 
traditional conservative Republican. I'm looking at it like, what the fuck are you thinking about this? You know, I mean, seriously, it's like, like, give us a signal. Can you just like maybe, you know, blink or something that that, you know, this is absolutely crazy that if you walked into a room, any room anywhere and someone was acting like this, you'd go, um, you'd turn to your aide and say, never want to let that guy back in the building again. I mean, just we're we are completely done. And yet they're not able to do this. Okay, so this is why I'm in kind of a cranky mood today. Not because of the speech, which I found, you know, whatever. It's the usual stuff. But um, the the issue of vaccination, I I just uh, this thing has has spiraled um, so quickly. And and of course, we've, the, the New York Times has this really a rather extraordinary story. You know that we're one of the few countries with enough vaccines at its disposal to protect every resident, and yet it has the highest rate of vaccine hesitance or refusal of any nation except Russia. And unless we turn this around, here's here's the sentence of the day. The unvaccinated will set the country on fire over and over again. And will I'm I'm sorry, I'm I'm this is where my patience kind of running thin here because this is this part of the pand- the of the of the disaster is man-made. I mean, this part is this pandemic of disinformation, demagoguery, hesitancy and refusal. And Republican politicians in the last week sort of realized the the danger of their recklessness and playing, you know, the culture war cards. But all we're getting are some speeches and op-eds. And I, just your sense about this, because it does feel like we hit a, a tipping point, turning point in the last week about vaccines and whether we're going to do anything about it. Yeah, I. I guess I think about the vaccinations uh, in terms of a sequence, right? You have these phases of vaccination, right? There were people like, there were the old people who like, we needed to vaccinate because they would die if they got COVID mm-hmm. and they, and they got vaccinated. And then there were people like me who like, I was like desperately, please make me eligible, make me eligible. And when I finally, when they finally did, I, I went in and got it, right? Then you have people who are sort of, eh, I'm on the fence. We're, we're, we're now at the phase where we tried, we, we already went through the phase of, please, please get the vaccination. It's it will help reasonable. everyone around you, right? We got reason, those reasonable, yes. We and got, now we're, we're all now, the reasonable people, yeah. And now we're down to the hardcore. And I know there are some people who logistically have trouble getting vaccination, but it's been a long time now. We're, we're getting down to the people who will only do it under some kind of threat, right? And so, you know, France is doing that. Um, some other places are doing that. And there are there is a building sort of push in this country for, look, these last people are not going to get, first of all, they're in obviously enough to like generate another wave under with Delta, if that's what's happening. And um, they're not listening to anything else. So it's time to, for example, say, look, if you work in the healthcare industry, you work for this or that employer, you're, you're done, you're fired unless you get the vaccine, right? And I think more and more places are going to do that now. We tried being nice, and now we're down to the people who didn't listen to nice. So, you know, that's where I think we are. No, I, I I agree with you. So where do you, where do you draw the line? I mean, I, it's it's a it's a ladder. It's a scale of you know you you move up from honor system, um, reasonably controlling, um, cr- you know, creating some uh, incentives, and then you get to the point where you have disincentives. Um, like, by the way, I, I actually I'm, I'm shocked to, that I'm going to say this, but the NFL 
got this absolutely right. I, mean, I thought this was brilliant. They are not requiring the players to have a vaccination, but they made it very, very clear that there are consequences uh, for their decision not to. They would forfeit games. They wouldn't get played. The team would, I mean, the entire team would get screwed if you, if an unvaccinated person gets sick and causes all, all of this. So there are real consequences. But as you point out now, there's this big push, medical groups, who are pushing for mandatory vaccines for all U.S. health personnel against coronavirus. I'm for that. What about you? Mandatory yeah, I, doctors, nurses, and you don't do it. That's your choice. That's your freedom. Find a different line of work. Yeah, I mean, and and that's like, as, as, as long as this is being done through private entities of one kind or another, this is not some sort of civil liberties violation. And you're welcome to claim you're a victim and you have a, you know, a dissenting view and you watch Alex Berenson, but like, you're, you're not entitled to a job under those conditions, particularly not one like healthcare where you're exposing other people. Or frankly, in the NFL, where like other players got their vaccines, you're going to line up across them and like tangle with them and hold them for, you know, 60 minutes and like give them the virus. No. You can't do that, right? It's an obligation you have to others. And can I just say, yeah. this is a role that the conservative party in our country could have played. The party that like took 9-11 seriously, but, you know, won't take 1-6 seriously, won't take COVID seriously. They could have been the party of patriotism. Let's all pull together and do what we need to do as a matter of national security. And instead, they sort of went the Tea Party route. And they're the libertarian party about viruses. Well, it's interesting that that, 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 that sort of the don't tread on me tradition, you know, it runs deep on on the right, uh, personal freedom. But personal freedom has always been balanced against other things, including, you know, civic virtue. And right now it's all don't tread on me, which basically means we're going to roll over grandma and we're going to we're going to ignore all of these 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 sorts of things. There's there's no balance whatsoever. Um and I I'm, I'm guess I'm somewhat interested in this whole, um, this new movement called, you know, the, the common good conservatism, which is sort of anti-libertarianism, anti-liberal, where you have this, uh, this core of the Trumpian right that says, you know, you know screw, screw liberal democracy. Um, you know, our goal should be to, uh, you know, have policies that are for the common good. And yet when it comes to the vaccination, you notice they just fell right in line with the libertarians, like whatever, you know, YOLO. You know, no one's going to make me take the vaccine. So, so much for that, which is an indication to me about how the culture wars have overridden any sort of patina of intellectual principle that you have in, in, in conservatism, Inc., yeah, I, I mean, I think what Republicans sort of figure, I mean, re what Republicans have done over the years, recent years, is, is sort of shed any part of their platform or their history that might uh, cost them votes. So, you know, for example, we're going to become populists on trade because like, you know, being, being, well, or debt, you know, being conservative about spending, being conservative about like uh, international economic exchange, like that's just politically costly. We can get votes by sort of becoming the Democrats on those issues, which is kind of what they did. And here in the case of the virus, it's sort of telling people what to do seems to be unpopular. So we're not going to tell you, you know, that you need to get vaccinated. And it's really not until there was enough sort of, you know, sickness and death among Republicans that there seems to have been some kind of turn here. I mean, what we've what we've ended up with is almost a, like a, a a Republican ghetto where like the the there's like a concentrated population. I mean, it's concentrated in certain areas of conservative people who didn't get vaccinated, and they're the ones who are getting sick and dying right now. And somehow the Republican Party seems to have woken up to that and 
<laughs> sort know. of. Yeah, so I, I, we can debate the extent of it, but clearly, like, they realize this is our people who are dying, and maybe we need to do something about that. Yeah, I want to come back to that in a moment, but I mean, it, it, it does feel, you know, awfully late. This comes, like, about five minutes after, you know, every Republican in the country was implying that that Joe Biden wanted to send stormtroopers door to door to force you to get vaccines. I mean, they bought into all of that when it was all, you know, fun, right? When it was like, hey, we're scoring some points. We're going to get on Fox News. But also you you have these Republican lawmakers around the country who are passing legislation that is making it harder for private entities to do this. I mean, I, one of the more shocking twists, I think, is, you know, watching uh, demagogues like uh, like DeSantis down in Florida, um, who's basically banning, well, not basically, he's banning private companies from making the choice that up until five minutes ago, conservatives thought that private companies ought to be able to make about the health and safety of their customers and their workers. So, I mean, it's one thing to say that I'm not going to have the government impose a mandate. They've gone further. The new ideology is preventing private individuals from exercising their freedom to set their standards. I mean, yeah, and, you know, you know, I mean that's that's really been quite a reversal. That's exactly right. And I think you're onto a really important point here. This is not libertarianism. This no. is populism. This is populism masquerading as like, we're going to tell private entities that they can't make you do something. So what you're really doing is you're appealing to popular anger at certain private entities to have the government come in and tell the private entities what they can and can't, you know, no, no shoe, uh, shoes, no shirt, no service, that old sign, yeah. you know, like, right. like, no, they can't Man, do that. that. And so, yeah, like the, the, the party is, has kind of become unmoored. I, the other thing that I noticed was Asa Hutchinson, the governor of our Republican governor of yes. Arkansas was on TV yesterday and, and they're asking him about, you know, this local, he's got the state legislature, the Republican state legislature in Arkansas telling localities what they can and cannot mandate in terms of public health measures. Again, right. They've just gone against a, a historic tradition, a conservative view that local control is better. And he was embarrassed. He was plainly embarrassed. He, and yet he signed the law. He signed the bill when it came to him. And now he's sort of admitting, you know, that was a mistake. And that was not only wrong in terms of public health, but it was a betrayal of what conservatives claim to stand for. Okay. Now I'm, I, I know this is a cliche. I know it's one of those hoary old, you know, just slogans, but I, I, I this is what I kept thinking about over the weekend that every conservative in America would understand that their right to swing their fist ends when somebody else's nose begins, right? I mean, you grew up with that. It was like mm -hmm. sticks and stones can break your bones. Yes, you have the complete freedom to wave your arm around until you smack into somebody's nose. So, I don't know. Your refusal, your right to refuse a vaccine or a life-saving medicine kind of ends when you begin to infect other people with lethal diseases, right? I mean, this is a comprehensible concept. That, that, yes, you have personal freedom until you start killing other people. The other thing that's bizarre, and I didn't write about it in my newsletter today, is listening to some of the folks on the right who are invoking this, well, no, I don't want the vaccine because it's my body, my choice. And, and they think they're being clever because they're taking the arguments from, you know, the pro-choice movement, you know, my body, my choice, and they're applying it to themselves, except that 
that's never been the premise that they had. I mean, it's just like they've 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 lost the narrative because they're so into trolling. Candace Owens can say, see, I'm quoting Planned Parenthood. Well, yes, but you disagree with Planned Parenthood. You know, you've always understood that it's your body until you take the life of someone else. So it, this is the other thing. It's it the it's sort of incoherence. So, well, you we mentioned before, Republican politicians are kind of falling all over themselves to now say, take the vaccine. Um, it seems late. It's good that they're doing it. It's good that Sarah Huckabee is writing an op-ed saying that people should take the Trump vaccine. I mean, if that's what it takes for people to convince to take it, if they think it's the Trump vaccine. But why do you think that there was this reversal other than the fact they realized that it's a it's a bad business model to kill your own constituents? Well, I, I, all right. So I think the bad business model idea is kind of central, right? Um, It's interesting. I like the analogy you just drew to the abortion issue, right? One of the things that uh, I wrote a whole book about the politics of abortion. So this is one where I feel like there's a lot of interesting analogies. So one of them is the idea, right? My body, my choice. And I think you've drawn an interesting distinction Mm. there. That is, that is the pro-life rejoinder, right? You just, you're killing somebody else. That's the argument, right? Yeah. But another dist- another argument that's sort of used on the pro-choice side is that conservatives who say they're against abortion, they have three exceptions to every abortion ban, right? Rape, incest, and me, right? So th- it's the hypocrisy of the person who says they're pro, the politician who says, I'm for life, but then they they're, when their daughter gets pregnant, they go and get an abortion or whoever. So it, in the case of COVID, it is sort of like, we don't really care. We didn't care so much when this was a disease that was coming in through airports and getting all the blue states, right? But now, what I mean, what's changed is vaccination has isolated Red America, right? It has made Red America the focus of the pandemic. And so the, the fact that it is now me, it is our people who are, who are dying, and not just dying, but like our people almost exclusively, um, that I think has just changed the, the attitude of a lot of these Republican politicians. So what should the Biden administration be doing now? I mean, clearly this poses a threat to their agenda, to the, you know, this was supposed to be hot Joe summer. Everything was going to come back. You know, we were going to get back to our lives. The economy was going to surge. Um, that may still happen, but it obviously seems under threat. Is In, in your view, is the Biden administration reacted aggressively enough yet? So I have an, a uh, kind of a... Uh, a Pollyannish view of this COVID wave that's happening right now. Uh, I think I'm sort of persuaded by Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, that we are farther into the Delta wave than we think. And, And if you watch what's going on in the UK, they're coming out of it and we're going to come out of it pretty soon. And so a lot of things that people are freaking out about, including the COVID wave, but also things like inflation, gas prices, a lot of this stuff is stuff we're worried about right now but in the not very long-term future, um, it's going to have gone away or subsided substantially. So I don't mean to say, you know, like, I mean, COVID will be around, but this wave will pass through. Um, and I mean, obviously we still need to get people vaccinated, but I don't think this is a long-term threat to hmm. the Biden administration or to the country. Well, I hope you're right about all this. You know, I'm listening to you and I just had a, a sort of a random thought that, Kind of after the last four years, our nerves have been so raw for so long, we've almost become addicted to panic and crises, whether or not that's sort of like the 
we're, we we all were programmed overreact. If you follow what I'm getting at, there, mm-hmm. you know, we have been so um, on edge for so long. Um, you know, feeling that you know catastrophe was just around the corner. That maybe right now our default position is to exaggerate every threat that's out there, and so it is hard to sort of modulate. Like, what is the real threat? What is hair on fire? And what is like, uh, you know, this is this is what's uh, you know this is what's happening. Do you understand what I mean? We, Absolutely. At a certain point, we become sort of like addicted, addicted to crises. And, yeah. and you know. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with that. And, and and just to be clear, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about this stuff. No, right? no, no, no. Everyone who dies, and they, look, look, I, I, I see this on Twitter. I see people on the left saying that they, they just don't give a damn about these stupid right-wingers who didn't get their vaccinations and uh, now they're dying yeah. and they deserve it. People, please, this, you're, these are your fellow human beings. It's don't talk good that way, right? No. So, like, so I, I, I don't want to accept any of those deaths. I'm just saying that in terms of the political effects, um, by the time we get to, around to the midterms, uh, this stuff, a lot of this stuff will have passed or changed significantly. I, one of the things that drives me a little, I mean, I do not understand Kevin McCarthy because so much of what he talks about and, and Elise Stefanik and all these House Republicans, what the issues they're going to run on are things that are big right now, but sure look to me like they're transitory. Some of the inflation that they want to talk about, uh, I believe some of the crime stats, uh, some of the, the border stuff. There are a lot of reasons why things that look bad and some, and to some extent are bad right now are going to fade. So let's talk about that. Uh, let's talk about Kevin McCarthy, who um, I'm, I, I have to admit that, you know, part of me is puzzled by how awful he is in terms of his politics. You know, the whole point of getting rid of Liz Cheney was because we just needed to move on from January 6th. We didn't need to talk about it. And yet, of course, he has he's tied the Republican Party completely to Donald Trump and his lie, which we were discussing a little bit before. But uh, so the January 6th committee over the weekend, uh, we had uh, Nancy Pelosi, who has rejected uh, two of the, uh, the the clowns that McCarthy had tried to put on that committee. Uh, and is now she's now named Adam Kinzinger to this committee along with Liz Cheney. So I want to give me your take on this, because, you know, it's. It is awfully interesting. This is this is a very aggressive Nancy Pelosi. This is a Nancy Pelosi willing to do things that are really unprecedented, really do things that aren't aren't normal, um, willing to escalate all of this. And there's something rather extraordinary about watching her say, "Okay, you're not going to put your people on. I'm going to make it bipartisan, and I'm going to put two of the members of the Congress that you have exiled into this particular position." So, how does this play out, Will? I mean, does it? Well, does it give me your sense? Well, okay. So, I, I, all right. Let me just make a confession up front. I am an institutional squish, right? I, I believe I, the way I see all this is sort of the way that Joe Biden often talks about it. We, mm-hmm. the, the big picture is a contest between authoritarianism and democracy, right? And so, what demo- we as the American democracy need to make our system work, and that means including people who are somewhat authoritarian in either their leanings or their cowardice, like Kevin McCarthy, like Jim Jordan. I mean, I mean, Jim Jordan is nuts, but he does represent a lot of America. And I, I wish that this had not happened. I wish that Pelosi had not vetoed these guys. They were, you know, Jordan and Devin Nunes, they were on the Intel committee during the Ukraine hearings. They tried to make it a circus. To some extent they did. We survived that, right? We got, we got as much information out about that as we could. The fact that Trump wasn't convicted in the Senate, let's set that aside for a minute. But the facts got out. And the facts would have gotten out here with Jim Jordan on this committee. I don't like that Pelosi did this. I mean, I'm glad 
that she put Kinzinger on the committee. And I'm glad for Cheney and Kinzinger that they exist and that they're speaking out. And I hope this works, but I really don't like that this okay. makes it easier for Republicans to portray it as partisan. Okay, so your mission is accomplished. You have put me in a much better mood now. <laughs> uh, you put me in a better mood because we're going to completely disagree about this. And and so, um, because I am really glad that she did this. I'm glad that she called bullshit on this. I'm glad that she said that, you know what, it is not normal that you people want to make a shit show out of the uh, the insurrection. Um, and I, I, I think it, it is that moment where you go, you know what, the we have accepted um, the Jim Jordans and, you know, the Devin Nunes and the, and the other guy, what was his name? Um, so yeah. Jim, Jim Banks, you know, and, and their, their antics and their, their lack of good faith we've accepted as the new normal. And I, I actually did find it, I, I take your point about institutionalism, but it also, you know, it's, it, it is to me refreshing to say, no, I'm not accepting this as normal. Um, we may have survived uh, the, you know, shit show antics of Jim Jordan earlier in Ukraine, but I think that there was real damage. I think it's also very interesting that she's reaching out to, to Cheney and Kinzinger, in particular because this has really not been happening. And I say this as, you know, somebody who is, you know, out here in the political wilderness, um, that the Democrats were sort of willing to pocket support from, you know, anti-Trump types uh, and then simply move on. Um, but it never actually reached out to them. And by the way, having just said that, um, Amanda Carpenter had a great point yesterday saying that the framing of Cheney and Kinzinger as anti-Trump buys into the narrative, this is all about Trump. It's all about whether you're loyal to Trump or against Trump. Reality is, is that Cheney and Kinzinger voted for Trump, uh, but have broken with them on this. So it's more accurate to describe them as pro-democracy Republicans, which is just as rare pro-democracy Republicans. But I like this. I like the fact that that now um, the guys who have been uh, where, you know, the, the guys that McCarthy wanted to render completely irrelevant and powerless now have uh, th this chance to make a difference. And I, I know that you'll will still have the partisan divides and the partisan complaints. But I think that you have a very I'm actually quite impressed with the way that Nancy Pelosi has put together this 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 committee. And I'm willing to concede that probably has done some damage to the, you know, some of the institutional norms. But um, th th those those norms have been crapped on pretty aggressively <laughs> over the last few years. Yeah. I, OK, so I don't think this is a binary question. Like if I ask as you're speaking, I'm asking myself at what percentage of Republican nuttery would I agree with you? So, you know, if 10 percent of the House Republican caucus were nuts like Jim Jordan is. Um, you know, then I think, okay, you could, you could cut them off. You could say to McCarthy, look, not that 10%. The problem is it's like two thirds of the caucus, right? That voted for it to decert, not to certify. Right. Isn't that, I think it's like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so at what, you know, so at, at that point I'm thinking, okay, you can't, you just can't exclude all of those people. And, I, and to, to Pelosi's credit, she said, that's not the issue. Right. Mm -hmm. But, and I, Charlie, she has been really lame about articulating exactly why these two right. guys couldn't right. be on, right? So then she needed to be clearer about that. But, you know, uh, so my argument is at some point you have so many crazies dominating the Republican Party. You, you look, she, you might get away with it, right? You might be able to say none of those people. We're going to put Cheney. We're going to put Kinzinger. And what the other 10 who've like, or, you know, the, the, the all 10 who voted for the impeachment. I don't know what it is. But if you can break off enough Republicans 
that even if McCarthy tells them they can't have any more committee assignments, they're out, right? That you now have a governing majority of this country consisting of Democrats and pro-democracy Republicans, then I'm okay with that. But I'm not exactly confident that that's what we're going to end up with. I'm a little worried that that coalition can't hold the majority. Oh, I know. I I actually share the same same concern. But I guess here's part of the problem with this question of, you know, accepting the new normal that you point out that when it's 10 percent, you can say, hey, you people are absolutely crazy and we're not going to deal with you. Um, but when they become 60 percent, it's like, OK, uh, you, this is normal. We have to accept I mean, that. That's that's the dilemma of our politics. Right. Is that is that the crazy has become dominant. The the most irresponsible elements of the party now represent maybe two thirds of the caucus. So I this is this is a problem. And I'm not sure that anybody's got a solution for it. I mean, how do you deal with an entire political party that has lost its mind like this? Yeah, I, I don't have a good answer to this. And as, as we're talking, I'm thinking it's similar in some ways to COVID, right? Where there's some okay. stuff that's COVID misinformation. And then there's some stuff that we classified as COVID misinformation, like the lab leak theory, which, you know, it turns out there's more of a basis to it than some of us thought. And so we have to sort of find a way to have some gray area where we're like, okay, you know, we disagree with you about, you know, yeah, like J- Jordan wants to spend the entire committee, this one January 6th committee, talking about like, you know, security failures and what Nancy Pelosi did or didn't do. And there's probably going to be some of that, right? There's going to be some I'm, embarrassment. I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah that's fine. Yeah. So like there has to be a way to sort of let these people vent, let them be part of the process, let them air that question without, you know, suppressing the obvious center, the central question, which is how did this uprising come about and who led it and what do we do about that? Okay, so I, I want to ask you about it, something else that Nancy Pelosi is doing, because I, I, I actually am kind of a fan of this, but I'm not a fan of another thing that she's doing. I think she's sort of one for two. And I want to get your take on this, but let's uh, let's take a break. Uh, let, let's take a break. We're talking with Will Salatin of Slate. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, Charlie Sykes here. Uh, just a quick reminder: if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you will have access to our morning newsletters, to JVL's Triad, uh, as well as our whole suite of podcasts. This one will remain free, but if you want to listen to the Secret Podcast or uh, participate in our live streams. Uh, or others like the Next Level podcast, uh, please consider joining Bulwark Plus. All right, we're back with Will Salatin of Slate. Okay, so Nancy Pelosi putting together this bipartisan January 6th committee. We disagree about that. I I kind of like it, but I don't understand the way that she's playing the infrastructure bill. Now, I I, I am going to confess that I kind of have a hands-off approach to watching the kabuki dance. Do they have a deal? Do they not have a deal? I mean, how the hell would I know? But what's very clear is that her position might blow it up. And tell me whether you disagree. Now, she is, we have these two-track bills, right? The one is the bipartisan bill, which is smaller, which needs 10 Republican votes, at least 10 Republican votes. The second will be passed, the bigger one, will be passed through reconciliation. The Republicans, there will be no Republican votes for this bigger multi-trillion dollar bill, which they hate and they're all going to vote against. There was a little bit of a kerfuffle um, when Biden said, well, he wouldn't sign the bipartisan bill unless the big fat um, partisan bill got, you know, got passed too. And then he had to back off from that. He had to like get on the phone. He had to kiss up to everybody and say, no, no, no. These are completely separate. They're two tracks. But if I'm hearing it right, Nancy Pelosi is, was on, you know, on the air yesterday saying that she will not put the bipartisan bill up for a vote in the House uh, 
until the big fat Democratic reconciliation bill is passed and Republicans are going, hey, that is not the deal. That is specifically not what we're agreeing to. And that's not what Biden supports. So why is she playing it this way? Okay, so you're not crazy, right? There okay. is, there, we have Biden sending one clear signal and Pelosi sending another. Uh, and, you know, Biden is a little bit hands off about Congress, like let them, why should I spend my capital fighting their fights? Let them fight it out. So he's letting her do this. He's been letting her do this for a couple of months. And I think the answer, Charlie, is she doesn't care about the same things he cares about, right? I mean, Biden, I think, is serious about this making democracy work, about reaching across the aisle. Um, we've got to prove that our system, you know, can get things done. And Pelosi just doesn't see it that way. She's just like, how many votes do I have? What can I get through? And she's got this coalition of Democrats that she can barely hold together, which she's got like a margin of five or whatever it is. And so she can't afford to lose any votes on the left. So she's just thinking about what can I get past? And she's quite happy to have Democrats get credit for all of this. Like if the, if the bipartisan talks collapse, right? And all of that stuff that they were talking about just gets folded into a reconciliation bill and the Democrats do it and they claim credit. She's fine with that. I don't think Biden wants it to happen that way, but I think Pelosi is fine. And and so here I'm with Biden, right? Like, mm -hmm. I think that it is really, we, we genuinely have a lot of spending that a lot of Republicans agree with Democrats about, right? And uh, Toomey was talking about this. Other, other Republicans have talked about this. They agree that all this stuff would be good. And it, it would be really good for the country if we could just have... Romney and Sass and Toomey and everybody else who can agree on this get together and do it. Uh, but Pelosi may just scrap that because from her point of view, there's no loss. In fact, there's kind of a gain if Democrats do it and get the credit. Well, do, so in the end, at the end of the day, to use the Washington uh, cliche, does this get done? I do not know the answer to that. So I, I, well, I, I mean, yeah, I think that um, the it might it might be that the bill that the bipartisan part of this just gets squeezed down to whatever they can agree on, and it becomes smaller, and then the Democrats take the remainder and fold it into reconciliation. That's my guess. I don't know what yeah. you think. Well, that's the easy one. I mean, that that's where if if we lived in a rational world, that's the way it would play out. If we were dealing with all of these, you know, bizarre cross currents and personalities uh, here, so I don't know what's going to happen. I think obviously this could be. This could either be Joe Biden's biggest victory, signal victory, um, and certainly a, a uh, you know ratification of his belief in bipartisanship, or it will be a signal that uh, that his that his presidency is going to go nowhere with this particular Congress. So I I don't know. Um, so I, I know that you haven't uh, published the story yet, but uh, you're working on something involving crime and crime numbers and. This is also one of the things sort of, you know, hanging out there, whether or not this is going to be a major political issue. Uh, Republicans think that it is. Um, certain Democrats like Eric Adams in New York thinks it is. Uh, so give me your take right now on the surge of violent crime in the cities and how that's going to play out politically. Well, the, the surge in crime, you know, I, the, the argument on the left is, look, it's not that bad. It used to be worse. And that's true. Mm -hmm. But like, you don't really do well in politics by telling people to ignore something because 30 years ago it was worse, right? Right. Uh, and, and it is affecting people. And it's affecting people who live in areas with crime. And that is largely minorities, right? So what you have is a lot of sort of white liberals saying, you know, let's look, this is overhyped. It's not such a big deal. And meanwhile, you have, I mean, there was an interesting poll that came out in Detroit a couple of days ago where like the white people, the white 
liberals are saying it's not a big deal. And the, the black people are saying like, dude, this is a serious issue, right? Like it's their number one issue. And meanwhile, police reform is moving way down the list. Not that black people don't care about police reform. They absolutely do. They are seriously worried about the cops, but the crime is affecting them. And I think that the, the sort of the, the white left is make, doing a major misreading if they try to brush this aside or to suggest anything that's hostile to police at a moment when when people really need police. This seems to be an important theme, though, this 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 gap um, between the educated white elite versus the the African-American vote. And, and I think that there was this assumption that the African-American vote was just as woke, was just as progressive as the the, the college educated white white elite. And that turning out not to be true at all. And so, you know, again, one of these tensions within that coalition are playing out on this issue, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I noticed looking at uh, public opinion on this is, uh, I mean, black people compared to white people are relatively wary of police, right? And they're Mm -hmm. more supportive, although they're not supportive of defunding police. Latinos are quite uh, at least moderate, if not conservative about these issues. They are sympathetic to police. They're very hostile to to defunding. And I think that there is a particular misreading of Latino public opinion by some uh, white people on the left. And and that could really, I mean, we saw some of that in the election, in the 2020 election, and that could really come back to bite them. You know, I'm I'm working very hard uh, not to have opinions about things that I don't really, you know, have to have opinions about. I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this before. When I used to have a, a, a three and a half hour radio show every single day, one of the burdens was the need to develop an opinion about all sorts of things. And and I'm part of my luxury of living my life now is that I can look at a story and go, I don't have to have an opinion about that. I don't have to have strong feelings about that. And maybe this is in this category. Did you see the 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 uh, the, the story about or the the video that was posted online? about the, the fly fisherman who confronts Tucker Carlson in Montana. Do you yeah, know I haven't seen the video, that? though. So. Okay, it's not that big. You know, basically, the guy goes up to Tucker Carlson, and he says, uh, hey, you know, you are the worst human being on the world in the world, and Tucker Carlson is kind of, you know, gets in his face. I mean, they don't yell at each other, but it's an awkward thing. But um, they, they don't hit each other. They don't have blows. But the guy is a little bit, you know, I mean, he, he's, you know, he's obnoxious. So, there, there's two different reactions to this. Well, there's many different reactions, but there's only two that I'd like to discuss. One is, of course, you know, folks on the left who just love the fact that somebody went and called out Tucker Carlson to his smug face. Um, and then there's the Dinesh D'Souza's who think that, that this guy should have been arrested because how dare he speak to Tucker Carlson in the presence of his daughter. By the way, I just I just love the fact that Dinesh D'Souza, you know, convicted felon, has this weird fetish for arresting people for talking. I mean, I mean, come on. So, I mean, I, I guess I, I have mixed feelings about this. I, you know, I don't like the the notion of like, let's yell at each other in public. On the other hand, wasn't it Tucker Carlson who was urging people to go and harass parents whose children were wearing masks at one point? So and it is interesting how people's sensibilities t- tend to change depending on the circumstances. Yeah, you know, I, I think that what's going on is there's uh, 
there's a kind of a rise of a politics of confrontation, right? Where you, you, you want to call people out. You want to get in their face. You want to find somebody who's saying something awful and just like start a fight. I see this on Twitter all the time. Like somebody says some cracked up thing and, you know, like there's people on the left, people who like follow me, I follow them. They're like, they want to talk about whatever the latest crazy thing Marjorie Taylor Greene said. Meanwhile, there's this infrastructure stuff going, let's, it's boring, right? It's boring. Oh yeah, we're spending $3 trillion, but it's boring. I mean, it's just like, uh, there's something natural, there's something in human nature that unfortunately draws us to these confrontations. So this guy confronting Tucker Carlson, like, why even talk to Tucker, right? I mean, you're not going to persuade him. He's got a business model of, like, getting people mad. You know, if you... Uh, you I feel like the, the biggest damage Tucker Carlson is doing is, like, misleading people about the dangers of the vaccine or yeah. COVID. And so I think the solution is to get out there and tell people the truth about COVID, not, like, get in Tucker Carlson's face. And, you know, like, if, I mean, honestly, Charlie, if you're sitting across the table from Donald Trump right now, what are you going to say to him, right? He's just cracked up. There's nothing you're going to like, is it going to make you feel better? It's not going to help the world. So no. I think it's better to talk to the audience. Well, the only point of this uh, confrontation was, of course, was that he knew it would be videotaped and he could put it up on YouTube or whatever. I mean, that's that's sort of the the meta of all of this. It doesn't matter what I say to him. It's what matters, like what I'm portrayed as saying to him. So but you're right. It, it has it has no effect. But of course, you know, Twitter is that weird world. And I'm trying to think of the of sort of the classic Twitter thing where you go, I like strawberries, you know, and the response is, your silence about oranges is shocking. I am, literally, <laughs> I, 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 I am literally shaking because clearly you, your your preference for strawberries is a reflection of your privilege. Whereas it's like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, it's like there's somebody out there. I mean, let's face it. There are a lot of people who are just sort of spring loaded to be offended about things. And, and they just they just want to go off. They just like, please trigger me. I want to be triggered. <laughs> that that is so true. And so what we have to understand, I think, is that like the 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 internet has completely changed human interaction in many ways. But one of them is you are hearing from the fringe all the time, all the right? time, yeah. right? And like, if you actually one of the one of my favorite things from 2020 was comparing the exit polls to Twitter, right? Where they would actually ask people in the exit poll, do you are do you are you active on Twitter? And those people were all, they were Bernie supporters, right? But Biden beat Bernie because basically most people aren't on Twitter, except that the Twitter people are audible. They're visible because, you know, I'm on Twitter. And sometimes when I get 500 angry replies saying we should defund the police, I have to remind myself, you're hearing from an extremely unrepresentative sample here. Okay, now I, I know we're running a little bit over here, but you know it's interesting you, you say you say that because I remember there was a time when I would go out in public and you know speak to a group, and I was always there was part of me that was always amazed because they were like normal, reasonable human beings. And of course, if you spend enough time on Twitter, this comes as a surprise to you. Like, wow, um, there are like good, decent people out here in the world if you talk to them, as opposed to the crazy fever swamp of social media. But the problem has been during the pandemic that we haven't gone out and met other people as as people. And so we have been confined to dealing with these fever swamps. So this has contributed, I think, to the the stress level, the disinformation, just the, the it, that sense that you have in the back of your mind that things are getting crazier. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you go outside and you go to a park and you talk to people, it's like, OK, things are going to be OK. 
things are the people are people are people. They're, you know, they have the, the differentiation. If you sit here, you know, on Twitter or Facebook long enough, you're going to think, man, it is just it, pure insanity. And for the last year, let's face it, too many people have been spending the time inside with social media. Yeah, absolutely. And now that we can we can make some of that go away, right? We can change yeah. that by the, the virus subsiding a little bit. People, we get out, we talk to people more, that can help. The thing that really worries me more than the Twitter echo chamber and the extremism that's amplified by the internet is the fundraising, right? Because now you yeah. have like the, in the case of the Republican Party, you have the actual money that funds the campaigns being driven by a strategy yep. of appealing. It's online and and it's 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 people with angry people at, at the extremes. And if that model continues to grow, I mean, that will absolutely tear our country apart in a way that the Internet conversation itself is not capable of doing. I, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, to the extent that we often fight the last war. Um, you know, I, I still see the heavy breathing rhetoric, you know, about the dark money and everything. I'm not going to try getting into all that as, as, as if, you know, PACs um, and, you know, corporate money is driving in American politics. And, and yes, it is tremendously influential. It is too influential. It is a discrete problem. But what you are describing right now is, you know, the real imminent danger to the body politic, which is that that right now the center of gravity is not the corporate contributions of AT&T. It is the millions of people that are going and clicking, you know, donate to Marjorie Taylor Greene when she says something extreme, which has totally changed the incentive structure in American politics, um, you know, in, to that extent. So in some, in some ways, we haven't adapted our uh, you know, our, our outrage about funding to the real threat that's emerging right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I, the, honestly, when I look around and I ask what can solve this problem, the still, the simplest way is two or three really bad elections in a row for the more extreme party. Yeah, I know. And I don't know that we're going to see that anytime soon. Will Salatin, thank you so much for joining me on a Monday morning and putting me in a much better mood. Thank you, Charlie. I hope I disagree with you enough. Um, we'll, we'll work, we'll, we will keep working on that. And thank you all for listening to today's uh, Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.